This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. History has not been kind to Himalaya, writes historian and travel writer John Kay in his latest book, Himalaya Exploring the Roof of the World. This region, nestled between India, China, and Central Asia, has long been subject to political and imperial intrigue, and at times, violent invasion. But this region has also provided a wealth of scientific information, like geographers puzzling over how these tall peaks were thrust upwards by plate tectonics. And, of course, this mountain range is the home to a Tibetan culture and people that has been present there for centuries. That's all from Kay's latest book, which collects years of detail on history, geography, and culture, all in one volume. John Kay has been writing about Himalaya and traveling there since the 1960s. He wrote the two-volume Explorers of the Western Himalayas, and wrote and presented a major BBC R3 documentary series on the Himalayan Kingdom. Other works include India History and China the History. In this interview, John and I talk about just a few details from his book, such as the Young Husband Expedition, plate tectonics, and local legends like the Ogress of the Rocks. So, John, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Um, you know, your book covers such a long period of history um, and covers so many different topics. I guess what motivated you to write the book? What's missing in how we understand the Himalayan mountains today? Uh, well, a lot of things are missing, but I guess the most important is that we have no real sense of the region's integrity and its uniqueness. Uh, and that's why the book is actually called Himalaya. Uh, Himalaya is that bruised area on a map of Asia right in the center uh, bruised in usually in a sort of purple or white uh, color on a physical map. And it's the ground above uh, 3,000 meters or say 13,000 feet. And that uh, includes the whole of uh, what uh, we think of as Tibet and all the 
um, uh, smaller states, kingdoms strung round the south of Tibet, and indeed the, um, uh, the, uh, the western Himalayan region, in other words, uh, the Hindu Kush and the Karakorams, as well as the great Himalayas. Um, and uh, as a, because the region has been so politically and culturally fragmented, uh, we tend to forget that it does, in fact, uh, form a single uh, enormous ecozone, the highest, the only high altitude ecozone in the world. Um, and in this sense, it's uh, quite uh, unique and, uh, and, and, and very important uh, for all the peoples who are not only live in the region, but who are dependent on the great rivers that come down from Himalaya into South Asia, into India and Pakistan, and also, of course, into Southeast Asia, the Mekong and China, indeed, the Yangtze. Uh, um, and so, um, my th- uh, when people talk about the Himalayan mountains, I tend to correct them and say, look, just think of those as part of a single enormous ecozone or region, uh, which, um, for the purposes of this book anyway, is called uh, Himalaya. Um, and, uh, and it's a sense of the integrity and the importance of this region that uh, seems to me uh, one of the most important was what certainly was the inspiration for the book and is one of the things that we have to take on board and perhaps aren't enough. So, I mean, you, you start with the Young Husband expedition of, was it of uh, 1904? I believe I got that date right. Um, That's right, yeah. You know, why, why, why start, I mean, why start with that expedition? What actually happened? Well, well uh, the Young Husband expedition, uh, in terms of the book, was partly a device and I needed uh some uh pivotal event uh around which to construct a narrative that follows uh and the best place seemed to be to start with the young husband expedition because that was uh the first well it's the first first of all the first um, foreign uh they were the first foreigners to reach Lhasa, the tibetan capital for um uh, 300 years or so, but uh, also because most of what, sh- what we understand about or would understand about um, Himalaya uh, comes from the uh, experiences and findings of the Young Husband expedition. We called it an expedition, actually, of course, it was an invasion. Um, uh, at the time, um, early 1900s, um, uh, Tibet was uh, resisting the approaches of uh, the British in India in terms of uh, setting up uh, amicable border relations and uh, normal diplomatic relations. Tibetans uh, were famously uh, xenophobic uh, and uh, uh, indifferent to international relations. Uh, And the British attempted to open uh, negotiations with them by sending this man Francis Young Husband with a few troops to uh, meet with a Tibetan delegation uh, just across the frontier north of um, Darjeeling. Um, the Tibetans did appear for this um, uh, parley, this uh, exchange of views, but they um, uh, gave actually refused to play ball. They just simply weren't interested in talking to um, uh, their neighbours in India and certainly not when the 
when young husband and his people were already on Tibetan territory. So that was in 1903, and that was abortive. But then the uh, expedition was reconfigured as what was, in fact, an invasion force uh, with about um, 3,000 troops, mountain guns, and so on, uh, and, and numerous um, officers and um, uh, uh, ancillaries, uh, porters and so on. Uh, this m- major expedition was dispatched from uh, Darjeeling in the north of uh, northeast India, across uh, up over the high passes, across into Tibet, and still the Tibetans refused to have any dealings with them. So. Uh, they eventually ended up having to shoot their way uh, across the Tibetan plateau to Lhasa. Um, and uh, as I said, they were the, really the first two, um, uh, first uh, Europeans or foreigners to uh, enter Lhasa for, since, since the 17th century. Um, and this caused a great sensation at the time. There were mixed feelings about the uh, expedition, um, uh, a lot of people thought it was appalling that um, British troops and machine guns and so on should be used against really uh, unarmed or Tibetans armed, Tibetan monks very often armed with just um, kind of garden implements and uh, a few spears and so, and so on. Uh, so it was, uh, it offended it, it um, uh, um, uh, the, the, the diplomatic morality of the time. Um, but also, uh, it, uh, it, the expedition was composed of uh, quite a number of um, of uh, British officers and also quite a number of uh, members of the press who reported back in great detail on the progress of the thing uh, to their various newspapers in London. And a lot of these officers and correspondents subsequently wrote uh, accounts of the expedition, some of them quite lavish um, and these became the real source of information, the only real source of information about uh, Himalaya and uh, Tibet in particular that was available uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and uh, their, the attitudes of these people I found quite interesting. They crop up again and again, these uh, uh, correspondents and um, officers who were involved with the young husbands. They crop up uh, over and over in the subsequent uh, story of Himalaya uh, in the 20th century. And clearly the uh, expedition and the, uh, the conditions that they've encountered in Tibet made a very deep impression on them. Um, and uh, some of them uh, were appalled that uh, there should be such a kind of medieval civilization still surviving uh, in uh, the heart of Asia. But others were really beguiled by Tibet and uh, took um, a subsequent interest in uh, Tibetan uh, religion and mythology and history and so on. Um, and uh, so they uh, contributed considerably to uh, our idea of Tibet and still do today. Um, uh, the, some of the accounts uh, of these members of the Young Husband Expedition are just as readable now and as informative as they were when they first appeared. So uh, I had, a, a, by using the Young Husband Expedition, it was partly a structural thing in terms of the book. It made sense to introduce the region through the eyes of uh, some of these um, members of the Young Husband Expedition and also uh, 
because uh, their attitudes um, towards uh, Tibet um, uh, were so varied that uh, it made a good sort of um, uh, uh, commentary on, on on what would follow. So there were those two reasons for focusing on the young husband expedition. The expedition, uh, um, as I said, reached uh, uh, Lhasa after quite a, a, a number of sort of minor battles, but certainly battles. Um, and uh, the young husband and his team then imposed a sort of very one-sided treaty on the Tibetans. The Dalai Lama had by then fled from uh, Lhasa ahead of the young husband expedition to Mongolia for sanctuary, uh, and the uh, uh, the British had to deal with uh, members of his staff, and uh, uh, they imposed a very heavy indemnity, a war indemnity, uh, kind of refund for the expense of invading Tibet on the Tibetans, uh, which meant that uh, uh, subsequently uh, Tibet. Uh, was brought within the kind of ambit of uh, British India. And uh, although uh, it would be a little while before uh, any British officer or resident was actually posted permanently to Lhasa, uh, certainly um, the expedition uh, uh, achieved its main aim, which was kind of neutralised Tibet in terms of the rivalry between the British in uh, India and uh, the Tsarist Russian authorities who were engrossing large parts of Central Asia at the time in what was uh, popularly known as the Great Game. So uh, it uh, really inaugurated um, uh, British and kind of overseas relations with uh, Tibet uh, and set their pattern for the rest of the 20th century. So it's not the not the only expedition you write about. It seems like there's, I mean, the, there there are all these surveying expeditions, and they all seem to have to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to to explore, survey, measure, climb these mountains. A lot of them are considered sacred by local residents. Um, I, I guess what what made these surveying I guess what made these surveying expeditions so difficult and kind of what were some of the things that surveyors had to do to get around the politics and the culture of the region? Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, this question of uh, surveying, measuring, mapping um, uh, Himalaya uh, had arisen really before the Young Houseman expedition. Um, the British in uh, India were curious about uh, what lay belong beyond their northern frontier, uh, but beyond the Himalayan mountains, and um, uh, made various attempts to uh, to penetrate the, uh, uh, the the frontiers of of Tibet, particularly, but also in the western Himalaya, and uh, to. Uh, get some idea of 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 what uh, lay there, really, because no one, you know, no one was really admitted into Tibet, and so they they resorted to um, employing uh, native uh, surveyors who uh, travelled in disguise, usually as merchants. Um, and were sent into Tibet uh, to, well, first of all, to sort of do basic things like to uh, uh, to measure where Lhasa was in terms of the world map, in terms of its longitude and latitude, um, and to uh, um, uh, explore uh, the 
extent and uh, produce and so on of, of the region. Um, as I say, for this purpose in the 19th century, um, uh, these uh, uh, local Bhotia people, mostly from the Uttarakhand region of India, um, that's a kind of um, central Himalayan region, uh, who already uh, had cross-border relations with the Tibetans um, in terms of in, in, for trading purposes. And um, uh, these um, Bhotias were taken into the employ of the Survey of India, the mapping authority in India, and taught how to um, use uh, uh, obvious instruments like um, compass and uh, um, uh, 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 measuring devices for um, uh, distances and so on. Um, and uh, were then uh, sent into... Um, Tibet and expected to come back. Uh, most of them did come back um, and uh, brought um, uh, a, a fund of information. I like the story of um, Nain Singh, one of the earliest so-called pundits who uh, en route to um, Lhasa, was coming from uh, western Tibet to Lhasa across uh, uh, the Changtang, the great um, empty quarter, if you like, more like the empty three quarters of Himalaya. Uh, and he was plodding along, measuring uh, the distances by the, the distance by the number of paces he was taking. He, 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 he'd count them off on a sort of rosary so that he could keep um, uh, Shall I keep going? Yes, okay. Um, uh, so Nain uh, Singh was tramping across Tibet um, uh, um, counting his paces and so on. Uh, and he suddenly heard this uh, singing or chant, and it seemed to be coming from underground. And uh, it was, you know, like the mystery of the singing sounds. What on earth was it? Well, it turned out that it was actually a, a gold mine. He'd, he'd stumbled across uh, one of the uh, um, uh, gold mines of central Tibet, of which there were several, um, and the gold miners actually lived underground in their diggings, um, and uh, and and they weren't to sing while they were there, particularly um, uh, when the busiest time for gold digging, which was in the winter. Um, and uh, so um, he uh, really stumbled upon this um, uh, this gold mining operation, and gold was one of the main. Uh, exports of uh, Tibet and was well known to be uh, because so many of uh, the temples in Himalaya and uh, monasteries and so on were um, uh, decorated with uh, gold leaf. Um, so uh, these uh, various pundits um, uh, were dispatched to all four corners of Himalaya and from that, uh, from their findings, um, uh, uh, maps, uh, well, itineraries and maps were produced by the uh, Indian Survey, uh, and these were available to uh, the Young Husband Expedition in 1904. Um, and uh, I mean, the extent to which exploration and um, discovery in Himalaya uh, it was reliant on. Uh, the local peoples is, of course, uh, uh, um, well illustrated, particularly not only by the Bhotias, who became 
who train as these pundits, but also, say, uh, by the Sherpas of Nepal. I mean, without the assistance of Sherpas, uh, probably mountaineers would still be tr- trying to work out how to conquer the world's highest peaks. Um, uh, so uh, when we when we talk about exploration, we tend to think of it purely in terms of um, of, of uh, foreign uh, achievements. Uh, but in fact, um, nearly all of these would have been impossible without uh, the assistance of um, local Himalayan peoples. Um, and uh, uh, this remains true today, of course. I mean, uh, the whole... Uh, tourist trekking, climbing industry is totally dependent on um, on, uh, on the hospitality and skills of and um, constitutions of the local peoples. I'd like to shift tack now. I mean, again, kind of in the beginning of your book, um, there's this discussion of um, plate tectonics and kind of how the Himalayan mountains, which today we know are the result of plate tectonics of the Indian subcontinent crashing into the rest of Asia. Um, but it wasn't, that wasn't a well-established theory, I think, until the, until the 1960s. How did the Himalayas kind of fit into this conversation about where mountains came from, how, how these gigantic peaks, um, arose? Yes. And, and this is, uh, really takes us back to the uh, 18th century when um, geologists were trying to, uh, or geophysicists, geologists particularly, were trying to uh, work out um, what, how, the, how our planet had been formed and how uh, the mountains and the, and the um, rivers and the oceans and so on had uh, come to be where they are. And uh, there were various um, theories uh, about this current at the time. One theory was um, uh, what was called, they were called Neptunists. They uh, based their ideas about how, say, the mountains were formed on uh, what they could observe from the actions of the tides. And they thought that mountains might be the kind of uh, ridges thrown up by um, movements of the oceans. Uh, another theory was that uh, uh, that was the Neptunist. The other theory was advanced by the Vulcanists, who maintained that uh, um, uh, volcanoes were evidence of um, a great heat being great heat being generated within the core of the Earth, and that this could, in some way, be responsible uh, for natural features like the mountains. Um, and it wasn't uh, really until um uh in the um uh, mid 18th century that um two very famous geologists james hutton who was a scot uh and uh um uh, uh oh god i've forgotten his name <laughs> and um a, 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 another Aust- and an austrian geologist both of whom advanced theories are based on these um, uh, ideas of, uh, of of heat and uh, the movement of the w- water oceans, um, and uh, but the main outcome of these um, theories was that uh, it gradually became uh, apparent that the age of the 
Earth was much, much older than anyone had assumed. And instead of uh, being a thousand, a few thousand years old, it was a few million years old. And suddenly a, a kind of time frame uh, was developed in which, uh, in particular, um, James Hutton uh, formulated the idea that um, uh, um, the surface of the world had been changing um, for a very, very long period and that mountains were being worn down uh, all the time and more mountains were being thrust up. Um, one theory was it was like a kind of baked apple that the surface that the earth was actually contracting and that was pushing up mountains uh, and uh, sucking in seas. Um, and... Uh, that was quite a popular idea for a while, but um, eventually the kind of Vulcanists with their uh, emphasis on uh, heat generated within the core of the earth, um, uh, their theories uh, gained uh, wide acceptance. Um, at the same time, uh, there was a lot of study of the movement of uh, glaciation in, say, the Alps, which were um, uh, familiar to uh, most of these um, European geologists. Uh, and uh, they uh, um, uh, took note of how uh, it, it appeared that uh, glaciation had once been much commoner, much more widespread, and that, uh, that glaciers had, had actually... Um, formed or helped to form uh, the outline of the mountains. Um, uh, and so there were these various theories around, and it wasn't really until uh, the early 20th century uh, that uh, Alfred Wegener, uh, uh, a German um, geophysicist, um, latched onto the idea that, the say, the coastline of uh, West Africa fitted very neatly into the coastline of South America and put forward this idea that of, of continental drift, of continents having at some point drifted apart. Uh, there were various reasons why not only did, did the outlines of, say, Africa and uh, South America fit neatly together, but also uh, there were various similarities in terms of the uh, rock structures and, and both these continents uh, and also in even in terms of uh, the um, uh, fauna and flora and so on uh, to suggest that at some point they had been wrenched apart and so uh, Wagner uh, um, uh, he developed his theory of, of continental drift really which we now call plate tectonics um, really from his experiences in Greenland he was um, sent into Greenland on uh, a number of expeditions um, and uh, there he witnessed the action of uh, you know Greenland is one big ice cap really he he witnessed the actions of uh, glaciers moving towards the uh, periphery of, of uh, Greenland and then falling into the sea in the dramatic fashion, fashion and breaking apart. And he suddenly thought that this was um, uh, perhaps analogous to how uh, the continents had formed and how they'd uh, been, had drifted apart. And, so, um, and uh, Wagner himself eventually uh, disappeared or uh, is, is presumed to have died in uh, is known to have died because he's actually his his um 
his corpse was found on the Iceland, on the Greenland ice cap. Um, and so he shared the fate of the, uh, of, of the glaciers themselves, which seemed somehow quite fitting. Um, uh, and his ideas were taken up by uh, other geophysicists and geologists in the uh, early first half of the 20th century um, and uh, augmented by what was discovered about the uh, floor of the oceans that um, that there were in fact volcanoes or had been and were still uh, there was still volcanic activity uh, right in the depths of the of the deepest um, oceans and that there too you could observe this or uh, could um, uh, work out how this uh, action of um, of plate tectonics of the core of the of the surface uh, core of the earth um, being pushed apart all the time. Um, uh, you, you could get actually a better idea of it in on the floor of the oceans than you could on dry land. Um, and uh, I mean, cut a long story short, in the particularly in the nineteen sixties, um, uh, this uh, theory of tectonics was. Um, uh, developed um, in both in America and in Europe um, uh, independently, um, and uh, by about the 1970s, it was widely accepted that this was in fact um, how the. Uh, I mean, about, of course, about the same time, uh, timers were bringing back reports of um, what they found on the on the highest peaks. Um, uh, as you know, when when uh, astronauts were sent to Mars and so on, one of the things they liked to collect was rock to bring back, so that um, scientists could uh, work out more about the constitution of of Mars. And uh, it was similar with the high peaks. But what they brought back, sometimes, say from Everest, was um, uh, bits of uh, limestone rock and so so on, within which were all these life forms in fossilized form, which one would normally find find uh, under, uh, in in the sea uh, on the on the bed of the ocean, uh, and so there was also uh, increasingly there was um, uh, concrete evidence that, however high the mountains were, they had at one point uh, been on the uh, floor of the ocean, um, and so uh, this process of uh, tectonic plate movement still going on. I mean, Himalaya, the Himalayas today are the, are the, are the most dramatic uh, example of tectonic activity anywhere in the world. And so what we know or now think we know about plate tectonics uh, owes a lot to uh, discoveries in the Himalayan region and to the questions that were raised by how uh, how these uh, colossally high mountains could have been created in the first place. So uh, that is a very dismal um, um, and rather pathetic explanation of 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 of, of the importance of Himalaya to our understanding of how the planet uh, our planet was formed. You know, I think I have I have I have one more question, and you know, you mentioned some of the. You mentioned this one legend, I think, of of how, um, I guess, one group of people in this region came about, and it's the legend of um, the ogress of the rocks. I wonder if you might talk about this legend and how that and how that connects to um, the people living, the people who who saw it as their origin story. 
Yes, yes. Now, this is, uh, uh, um, I mean, uh, Tibet is a great land of myth and mythology, um, and uh, some of it is in uh, in, a, in, a, in a Buddhist kind of medium, uh, and some of it is uh, uh, more closely related to a faith very similar to Buddhism, which is uh, called Pu, or it's actually spelt Bon, but it's apparently pronounced Pu, uh, which may have preceded uh, Buddhism uh, in Tibet and certainly uh, constituted quite a, a rival um, system of uh, uh, myths, creation myths and so on, um, and uh, uh, theology uh, to that uh, provided by Buddhism. Uh, and um, in in this uh, possibly pre-Buddhist uh, uh, mythology, uh, there are various um, uh, creation myths, and that perhaps is one of the most interesting. Is how I mean, which still a bit of a puzzle: how the Tibetans managed to adapt to life at such high altitudes um, as you find in Tibet, uh, and. Um, uh, the, the myth of the ogress of the rocks um, uh, is a kind of mixture of Po and, uh, and Buddhist ideas uh, and suggests that the origins of the uh, Tibetan people are to be found in uh, a race of uh, monkeys. Um, and these uh, monkeys uh, were... Um, uh, um, born uh, of um, a partnership between um, one of the bodhisattvas, one of the uh, Buddhist um, uh, deities, and uh, a local um, uh, uh, born uh, bo, uh, deity who was known as the Ogress of the Rocks. Uh, and these two generated um, uh, a number of uh, uh, descendants who was like half monkeys and half uh, people and uh, then the, the Bodhisattva had to return and give them uh, various um, uh, commodities like uh, grain and uh, gold and so forth and tell them to spread them about the, the landscape and then they would uh, have the wherewithal to start uh, um, agricultural um, uh, production to grow crops uh, and gold with which to trade with uh, any neighbours. Uh, and so uh, the genesis of uh, the Tibetan people, according to this uh, mythology, is um, that of a partnership between a superior um, uh, deity or um, personage and uh, these um, indigenous uh, monkeys. And in a curious way, uh, this has been somewhat substantiated uh, in um, uh, recent years by uh, the, the use of, uh, by, by genomic studies. Um, uh, and we now know that um, uh, the Tibetans uh, probably owed their um, uh, ad adaptation to high altitudes, not uh, to uh, simply acclimatization, but to actually intermarrying with um, 
other peoples, particularly uh, possibly Neanderthals, but uh, or closely related people known as the Denisovans, who uh, early um, uh, hominins uh, who um, who populated the same area and whose um, uh, genomic sequences have been found in uh, various um, caves in. Uh, northern Tibet and uh, western China and indeed southern Russia. Uh, uh, And so um, the theory of uh, the creation myth uh, or the the humanization myth of uh, of Tibetan mythology uh, has actually been or is actually being substantiated by uh, ongoing uh, studies uh, today, particularly uh, using um, uh, a DNA uh, a genome uh, um, technology. Does that help? So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with John Kay, author of Himalaya Exploring the Roof of the World. John, I actually have two final questions for you, which are uh, where can people find your work? And what do you think the next project might be? Ah, sorry. What was what the next project? What was the first part of the question? Oh, and and where where can people find your work? Ah, uh, uh, well, uh, Himalaya. Um, the, the title of the book is Himalaya: Exploring the Roof of the World, and it's published by uh, Bloomsbury in. Uh, in uh, in the US and in the UK uh, and um, is available, I hope, um, uh, in any good bookshop anywhere in the world. Um, it's at the moment in hardback, but it will be paperback too, I expect. Um, my next project, well, uh, one of the things that's changing so much in uh, Himalaya at the moment is that uh, uh, all sorts of communication links are being opened up, and uh, um, in in China in 2006 uh, they opened a, a rail commu- a rail link between uh, Xining in uh, in China proper to um, in, in Qinghai province to Lhasa in um, Tibet, which is the first uh, rail link into Tibet that was ever. That's ever been constructed, and this has had momentous um, uh, impact. Uh, loads of um, Chinese tourists, officials, prospectors, um, uh, uh, developers, investors, and so on have poured into uh, Lhasa, and uh, Tibet is now uh, benefiting from uh, from all this investment, um, and. Uh, the rail links are being extended within, and road links, of course, within Tibet. And uh, this has all helped uh, very much to kind of contain, from Beijing's point of view, contain uh, Tibetan separatism. And I don't think it's doing the country any favours in terms of this uh, massive, these massive developments. And it's not doing the environment any favours anyway. But it is... Um, uh, uh, proving benef- beneficial to uh, Tibet and uh, the Indian government no doubt observing the effect of this new rail link then decided to press ahead uh, in the early 2000s 
with uh, its own rail link from uh, f- from the Indian rail network into uh, Kashmir, which is also was a regional activity that had no rail connection with the rest of the world. And uh, the new rail uh, line through uh, the western Himalaya from uh, Punjab in India into uh, Kashmir and then perhaps onto Ladakh in, uh, uh, in, in uh, western Tibet um, is due to open, I think, in 2025, so quite soon. Um, and this may be uh, a solution or will maybe help solve the long, long-running, ongoing uh, Kashmir dispute as to... Um, as, as to, uh, you know, there's been an insurrection by the Kashmiris against uh, the Indian government since about the late 1980s. Um, and there's still uh, enormous tensions with uh, between India and Pakistan in that region. Uh, and it's hoped that, that I think there's a fair chance that, the, that uh, this uh, railroad would have the same effect in Kashmir as it as it has in uh, Tibet. And so uh, I think my next book will probably be uh, a Kashmir book. I, I mean, I, I once lived in Kashmir for about six months. This was a long time ago, in the 1960s. So I knew it, knew it quite well then, but I have been back uh, very frequently since because uh, it's been uh, so unstable and uh you know, it's got half a million uh, Indian troops uh, are based in, still based in Kashmir and um, the neighbouring regions. Um, and so it's one, or has been one big military camp. But I'm hoping this is going to change. And I'm certainly hoping to go back to Kashmir uh, sometime next year uh, in, by way of um, uh, research for what will I hope will be um, a, a seminal book on Kashmir and its history. So that's that's hopefully the next project. Well, I look forward to to learning more about it. Just to wrap up this outro, little outro spiel, you can go to asianbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. You can find many more author interviews at New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. We're on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for what's coming up on the show. But John, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas.